Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Hoarding is the persistent acquisition and difficulty of discarding or parting with possessions, regardless of their actual value. The behavior usually has harmful effects, emotional, physical, social, financial, and even legal for a hoarder and family members, and treating and preventing it can be a major challenge. Today, my guest is Maria Spitalnik, board-certified professional organizer and founder and CEO of a company called Conquer the Clutterer. Maria will talk about causes, risk factors, and examples of hoarding and how it can affect older adults and their families. She'll also talk about treatment and prevention of hoarding. So welcome, Maria, and thank you for joining me today. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Maria, let's talk about hoarding. What is the definition, the root causes, uh, risk factors? What do we need to know about hoarding? Hoarding is not a choice. It's not somebody waking up in the morning and saying, you know, I'm tired of being able to find my keys in the morning to go to work. So how about I just fill my house and then randomly chuck them into the pile every night and see if I can find them in the morning. We're nothing like that. It's it's a brain-based condition. There are several causes of it, Um, some from genetics and some from injury, illness. There's a lot of different ways hoarding can begin. But it tends to be triggered by grief or loss. So even if you have a predisposition to hoard, it doesn't mean that you will, but you can find yourself going from a completely average type household to a hoarded household after a major loss. So it's something that needs to be paid attention to, or you can find yourself in some real trouble. And are there different stages of hoarding? And as we talk about this, I'd really like to hear more about whether this is more common in older adults, and if so, why? There's an international clutter hoarding scale. Now, whoever knew we would need one of these things, but we do. So if you are interested in that, there is a website, challengingdisorganization.org, You can go there. There is the clutter scale there. There's all kinds of information, tip sheets, all kinds of tests, etc., so that you can kind of see where you fit on the spectrum. But hoarding actually begins in the teenage years, 12, 13, 14, and it continues um, to expand as time goes by. Now, your average 12 or 13 year old doesn't get away with having a, a room that's overly full usually because the parents get involved. And then when they go off to college, a dorm mate, particularly if they'd like to have a boyfriend or girlfriend come to the room, they're going to enforce a certain level of organization on you, whether you like it or not. After that, there may be a spouse. The reason that the hoarding TV shows mostly show older folks is because they can't hide it anymore. They've had a fall and the EMTs have had to come in or a family member has come by the house and seen it and reports them. Um, An HOA gets involved. But it's usually older when you're caught, but it starts young. I was also wondering if, since older adults might have different kinds of conditions, we're we're talking about something that, a, a behavior, Could it also be associated with dementia, or might there be other mental disorders that are associated with uh, hoarding? There are. There are physical conditions and mental. So, for example, um, there was a man named Phineas Gage who worked with the railroads. He was a really nice guy. And then he was tamping a spike into um, a railroad track when there was an explosion and he wound up with the metal rod going through his brain and all the way through. After that, he wound up becoming mean and nasty and he started to hoard. He wound up with Barnum and Bailey Circus. So if you'd like to learn more about him, his name is Phineas Gage, starting with PH. Um, But that was when they realized that some behaviors, including hoarding and other things, came in different parts of the brain because of where he got hit, that was why. 
So you can be in a car crash and start to hoard because you've had a traumatic brain injury. Some diseases can cause it. But then with mental health, bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, um, autism, a lot of different diseases can have a hoarding component that may or may not show up. But dementia is also one of them. Alzheimer's, Lewy body, um, funnel temporal uh, dementia is a big one. So if you think about it, any part of any disease, whether physical or mental, that affects your prefrontal cortex, it's going to potentially cause hoarding behavior because that's where your executive functions are housed. And I'm also wondering if there might be a difference or a prevalence of hoarding in different racial or ethnic groups, or I was also wondering about socioeconomic levels, uh, whether if you have more money or less money, that might have a bearing on hoarding, or doesn't it make a difference? It really doesn't. Hoarding is as a disease, as opposed to some behaviors, but actual true hoarding disorder is in two to 5% of the community population worldwide. Uh, I've had people say to me, oh, no, it's those people out in West Virginia with a washer-dryer on the porch. And that's not true. I've had clients in Section 8 housing and clients who've been in multi-million dollar houses. I've had clients with a third grade education and clients with multiple PhDs. I've had all races, genders, ages, children, no children, all religions. Now, I have had some people say that people in Japan don't hoard. Yes, they do. There is actually a professional organization for organizers in Japan. Or Buddhists don't hoard because getting rid of, of things is part of the religion and living simply. No, they hoard too. There's just more guilt because you get the general guilt, then you get the religious guilt on top. Um, there was one study that showed a slight preponderance of men over the age of 70 but there was also a question of, were their wives no longer there to, to deal with it? But there was only one study out of hundreds that have been done. So I don't give it much weight. And I, since you mentioned men, um, I didn't ask about gender. And you gave an example, but so it can be equal, men and women hoard. Men and women. There's only the one study that I've ever found. that, And that preponderance was only like 1% difference. So that could just be who they interviewed. Okay. Okay. And what about possible complications? Well, the biggest ones are to health and safety. So poor air quality can lead to lung problems, trip and fall hazards. Uh, you can become entrapped by your stuff. You can get bitten by pests, either rodents or fleas, ticks, mites, all kinds of different uh, things can bite you. Um, and a lot of times things like medications are not found easily, so they're not taken on time or not taken at all, or they've gone bad, but they're taken when they're found, which can be really bad for you. Most of the things are going to be health and safety. Now, there's always a chance of fire in any home, but it's much higher in hoarded homes. And so when you have a fire in a place where it's hard to get in and out of on a good day, it's going to be particularly hard to escape um, in a hoarded home where vision is difficult and it's hard to get around. So we've been talking now about kind of in the third person. Let's actually focus on the hoarders themselves. How, how does a hoarder view the issues in terms of their signs and symptoms? And do they see hoarding as a problem? For the most part, they have very poor insight into the problem. They don't understand why they're being picked on because every house on the street looks like theirs. Um, everybody lives like this. There's just somebody who has it out for them. They, uh, I've seen people cut sandwiches on cutting boards that have bugs on them and, and eat it because they don't see that it's a problem. You know, everybody is like this. I'll tell you, that's one reason why I no longer eat at potlucks. I, uh, if I, unless I know the kitchen that that food came out of, I don't eat that anymore. They don't see a problem with it. They're used to it. They, uh, they've, some of them have always lived like this. 80% of children that hoard grew up in hoarded homes. So 
that's a real problem. Um, so you've got nature and nurture working against you at that point. So this is how I was raised. This is normal. So it's a real problem, insight. And I was thinking, too, if you kind of expand it beyond the hoarder himself or herself, talk more about how the families view the hoarding, of course, or let's get it a little closer to home, um, the the partner or the spouse or the um, uh, some other relative or maybe even you know, somebody who has to come in for some kind of services, and maybe that doesn't happen. But let's broaden that circle as to how other people view this hoarding issue. Well, it's kind of funny. What'll happen is, is I will be, let's say I'm giving a speech somewhere, and someone will come up to me and they'll say, you know, I'm a little cluttered, but you should see my sister's house. I had a pair of sisters, actually, that lived next door to each other. And they were both really hoarding strongly and I would go to one and then I would go to the other and it was kind of funny because I had to stop them from rescuing things from the other person's pile of stuff that they were going to get rid of but they both told me that while they had a small problem the sibling is the one with the real problem it's easier to see it in somebody else than it is to see it in you now to some extent Birds of a feather flock together. It's not uncommon to find a husband and wife that both hoard. But it is also the case of where one might and one might not. But the one that doesn't has often gotten to the point where they're tired of fighting it. You know, they were cleaning up after their spouse for all these years. They love them. They want to stay with them. But they've just given up on being able to maintain. So there have been situations where the house is fully hoarded. They're both adding to it, but only one actually has hoarding disorder. A lot of times what will happen, though, is mom has been able to manage and dad have been able to manage for a certain period of time, and then the kids come to visit from out of state. Now, particularly if it's been triggered uh, by a major loss, spouse or whatever, um, and they walk into the house and they say, this isn't the woman who raised me. This isn't how my mom was. I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, my ho the house is full. And they're devastated. Family is often, especially if they don't hoard or weren't raised in a hoarded environment, are often truly devastated that their loved one is living like this. Um, I get a lot of phone calls right after Thanksgiving and Christmas because that's when the kids came in from out of town and went, holy smokes, we got to do something about this because mom's just not safe here. Um, a lot of times they get angry. They'll yell at the person. They, call, they will actually make dealing with it harder. All with, the, all with trying to do a good job and trying to be helpful. But a lot of times they can trigger more hoarding behavior by how they handle it. And I would imagine they're also the adult children who are visiting for the holidays are also going to try to figure out how to solve the problem during the short time that they're there. Correct. Um, I get phone calls that say, you know, my mom's in the hospital because she fell at the grocery store. And while she's in the hospital, we want to go into our house and clean it out for her. And the answer for our company is not unless mom is on board with that. A lot of times they want to do it as a surprise. And that will completely destroy all trust in the family. It, um, it's as if you walked into somebody's house and broke into their safe and stole their mother's you know, wedding ring out of the safe. It's that traumatic and it's that personal. Um, it will devastate the person when they go home and find that their stuff is missing. It may be stuff like empty soda bottles, but to them the fact that you violated their space and trust is a huge problem for the relationship. Uh, so we don't take those jobs. There are companies that do. I will, I will say that. But I do not want to cause any more trauma to the person who's hoarding because trauma triggers more hoarding behavior. So you think you're helping, but you're actually damaging them. And one thing that also strikes me, Maria, is the fact that 
the hoarder could differentiate between hoarding and collecting. Oftentimes, older adults over a lifetime have collected various things from knickknacks to whatever. How does the hoarder differentiate what they're doing? And maybe outsiders, again, family or, you know, you who who is trying to help and that. What do we need to know there? There is a difference between collecting, being cluttered, and hoarding. And chronic disorganization, which is a, a chronic disorganization is in between clutter and hoarding for the most part, but it can look the same. It just has a different brain base. If someone is a collector, they usually have a limited number of things that they're collecting. The items that they're collecting are displayed and maintained well. They can talk about the items. They know which ones have value, which ones are just for fun, etc. So if you think of Jay Leno. He's been on TV a lot of times talking about his cars and his planes and his motorcycles. And he has hundreds of them. But they are all maintained in this huge garage he has. They are all beautifully restored, etc. Because that's what he loves to do. He has the space for it. And that's what his collection is. When you start putting your collection under a bed, out in the garage, up in an attic... You can't get to it because there's other stuff in the way. That's starting to get into the cluttering phase. And hoarding is when you collect everything. From scraps of string to um, teddy bears to pots and pans. When I walk into a hoarded home, people will tell me, Oh, well, I collect those. You collect paper plates? Yes because I will use them sometime. And no, that's not what it is. It's By calling it a collection, it's a way to justify holding on to things that you really don't have a reason to keep otherwise. Well, and, and to that point, I guess it's, it's interesting to hear what you had said in terms of the response of, well, I'm sure I might use that sometime. Is that a common phrase? You know, people are so reluctant, and, and maybe it has sentimental value to the extreme, perhaps, but is that a common response uh, when, when challenged about the possibility of hoarding? They're both incredibly common. The sentimental can be kind of confusing if you haven't seen it before. So, for example, I had a woman who collected every scrap of paper that her father had ever written on, even if it was a phone number with no names, a grocery list, or whatever. Because he wrote it, it had to be kept. So, yes, sometimes the things are sentimental. But just-in-case thinking is a huge component for a lot of people. I'm going to hold on to this pair of pants that's five sizes too small for me, because someday... Somebody that I know might need them. And realistically, even if the friend needs them, they're not going to be able to find them. I have people that have bought birthday presents or or baby shower presents, and the child is now 15 years older than the, the age for that particular gift. It just never actually leaves the house. And... They can come up with what-if or just-in-case thinking for any sort of an item. I have had people who have said to me, well, I have to keep this thing because if the zombie apocalypse happens, I'm going to need these. So if you think about it this way, okay, if the zombie apocalypse, apocalypse came today and you decided to use chainsaws as your method of defense. Well, you need not only chainsaw, but you need a backup because the first one could die. Then you need cans of gas. Then you need extra cans for additional gas because now you've got two chainsaws. Maybe somebody else will need the second chainsaw. Oh, and then you need to be able to sharpen the blade. You need to be able to put new blades on it, etc., etc., etc. So this simple concept of how am I going to protect myself against zombies, which is an incredibly small chance of it ever happening, now has to have a lot of solutions. So now I've collected my 47 chainsaws, my 87 gallons of gas and oil and extra blades and extra everything. And then I realize, well, what if 
that all runs out and I need something that isn't powered by gas. Well, now I have to come up with new solutions. So now not only do I keep all of that, but now I have to look at other ways that I can get rid of zombies. And so these things just keep building and building and building. And repetition and having a backup can be a good thing, but it's taken to extremes. Obviously, you were talking about chainsaws and uh, cans of gasoline as just one example. But um, I wanted to just cover one more question before the break, and that is the items that people may hoard. And I'm thinking that given that you've been in this business for quite a few years, just give us some examples. I think people are may or our listeners may be surprised at what kinds of things you already mentioned about scraps of paper, but uh, give us a list of the kinds of things that uh, people may hoard. Well, one of the biggest ones is food. People buy food on sale. People buy food for whatever reason. Um, and they tend to stockpile it and then they just keep adding to the stockpile rather than using up the older stuff. It just new stuff gets put in front and everything gets shoved back or piled up closer to wherever. So food is big and clothes are big. Those are the top two um, other than paper. Paper is the king of the castle. Flyers, newspapers, uh, actual mail, bills, which never get opened, by the way. For some reason, mail doesn't get opened. It just gets tossed on a pile until it takes over the house. Um, a lot of times people are paying their bills online and so they don't, they know that they don't have to open the envelopes. They never, ever do. But paper is king. Food and clothes are next. Um, but I've had people who've saved cigarette butts, twist ties, uh, used aluminum foil. I had one client that was petrified that her doctor was not going to believe her when asked about the child's bowel movements. So she kept every diaper any of her children ever used. They were dated and they filled the bathroom because she had seven children. And she never got rid of any of them because she thought she wouldn't be believed when she told the doctor that no, this wasn't the usual. So there's all kinds of reasons. And if it can be saved, somebody out there is saving it. Wow. And I'm sure that's only just the tip of the iceberg. There's uh, probably lots of, of different examples, and we're going to talk about that in the second half of the program. So in case you tuned in late, we're talking about hoarding. And our guest today is Maria Spitalnik, who is a board-certified professional organizer, and she's also founder and CEO of a company called Conquer the Clutter. And you're going to hear more about this issue on the second half. You're listening to WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Our topic is about hoarding today, and we're talking with Maria Spitalnik, who is with the company called Conquer the Clutter. And Maria, we talked a lot about uh, possibilities in terms of signs and symptoms and that related to hoarding, but I wanted to see what other factors may contribute to hoarding, and I was wondering about compulsive shopping. You mentioned a little bit about food, but talk a little bit more about compulsive shopping and how that might be a factor. Compulsive shopping is actually the way some people define hoarding. So if you think about it with a therapist, if they say you have a compulsive shopping disorder, they're saying that you might be kind of on the brink of being able to get rid of enough to balance what comes in, but excessive acquisition, compulsive shopping, these are all things that um, tend to be descriptors for hoarding behavior. Now, there's things like extreme couponing that some people get into. And I have two clients that do that. One, every year, 
She goes to the charities that she wants to support. She finds out what items they want. She does her extreme couponing for those items. She puts them in her garage. And then at the end of the year, she delivers all of that stuff to those appropriate charities. That is not hoarding. That, that is a, a charity thing that she does. Because the items actually make it to the charity. I have another gentleman who's an extreme couponer whose garage is also full, but he's keeping it all. This is all for him. He has, I think, over 40 sticks of deodorant just for himself, which if he were to pull any off the shelves in the garage right now, probably even the ones in the front wouldn't work properly because they've probably dried out by now. He just, he acquires, but he can't let go. So that would be a compulsive shopping concept. He's using the um, extreme couponer just because he's saving money while he does it, but he's still acquiring all of that. So that's, that's your compulsive shopping aspect. Um, one of the things that you and I talked about earlier were things like marketing. So if you have a predisposition to hoard, Things like buy one, get one free sales. Well, you're an idiot if you don't get the second one, right? Even if you don't need it. Um, there's sale prices, but you have to buy a minimum number of the things. I only need one can of soup, but I will get the sale price if I buy three cans of soup. So I will someday use that soup. So I might as well go ahead and get all three. Or... Like at Costco, I can buy a giant container of this spice that I need for this recipe, but I only make the recipe once a year. But I'm going to buy all of the, the bigger container because it's so much cheaper per ounce, even though I'm never going to use the rest of it. So there are some marketing things that, just like with the extreme couponing, are going to have an effect. And it just makes it easier to collect. Now... I said that people do this worldwide and people with all different amounts of money hoard. So what do you do if you don't have the money to, to buy the stuff in the store? Well, there's a lot of people who thrift. There's a lot of people who go on to the free sites, Craigslist, um, free cycle, etc. They'll get things for free. Some will pick things up off the, the, the curb. You know, if you put out a, a dining room set, for example, and a free sign on it, the odds are somebody's going to pick it up and take it away. There's lots of ways that I can accumulate things if the acquisition is important to me. And so there have been people whose houses have been cleaned out and in order to refill have been found stealing with the sole purpose of being able to make their home comfortable again. Comfortable for them, not comfortable for the rest of us. So there's a lot of things that can make the reacquisition easier. And so that, be, that is a problem that we have here. And what I'm hearing you say then is, is that, and I'm thinking about like phone telemarketers, which, you know, we try to try to avoid those, but some folks might pick up and be influenced. So can hoarders be manipulated by, by phone telemarketers? Well, anybody can be manipulated by telemarketers. So let's just start with that. <laughs> um, but there are some things in place. It, it's not so much for phones, but um, let's say you were to call one of the television shopping channels to place an order. The way their systems are set up are designed to have you call back, connect with the same person, and then they take notes on everything you say so that they're going to build an artificial friendship with you. So Cheryl, let's say that you called in and you were talking to me. The next time you call, it'll root you back to me. And that's when I can say things like, oh, Cheryl, the last time we spoke, your cat was going into the hospital. How is Buttons doing? Well, now you're going to start to feel like I'm, I remember you. I'm your friend. I care about you. And so I will be able to convince you to buy more stuff. Because, you know, those blue shoes you bought last time, well, now they're coming in five new colors. And so it's a strict marketing technique that they're not specifically aiming towards people that hoard, but that people that hoard really easily fall into. And it's a, it's a challenge to, uh, to avoid that when you want to please whoever it is you're talking to. And 
To that point now, and uh, the fact that you mentioned Buttons My Cat, I was also wondering about animal hoarders. Are there folks that you've seen that hoard animals? What about that? There are some people that hoard things and animals. It does tend to be one or the other, but animal hoarding is very different. It tends to hit the news because of the plight of the animals, uh, whereas stuff hoarding does not. There's a lot more people that stuff hoard. But when it comes to animal hoarding, it's the cruelty of it. It's not intentional. These people are not intentionally causing harm to the animals. But they have so many that they can't afford, they can barely afford to feed usually. But they're not getting medical attention. They're not getting spayed and neutered, which means you keep having more pets. The urine and feces and decomposing animals and all of that is bad for the pets themselves. Um, Especially if they're not eating, they'll often kill each other and then eat the loser, which then, of course, leads to more dangerous diseases and things being within the population. Uh, And of course, all of those things, the, the, the decomposition and all the rest of that can affect the people who live in the home. So now we've got a vector back to the human people um, for their own health and safety. So it's bad for everyone, the animals, for the people, the neighborhood, everything, uh, when people uh, animal hoard. Um, But one of the reasons that people tend to do it is because animals give us unconditional love. And my husband, for some silly reason, seems to think that he's allowed to have his own opinions. You know, he's allowed to um, have a bad day and want to gripe about it to me. But my dogs never do. They are always thrilled to see me. If I'm in a bad mood, they want to know how they can make me happy. You know, if, if I'm sad and I sit in my chair, my dog will put his head in my lap and just look up at me with those soulful eyes of anything I can do. Just tell me I will do it for you. And people don't do that. We shouldn't do it. And we don't. But that's a real good drug there to have in your pocket. And of course, if one dog is good, two dogs is better and 10 dogs is better and etc. So a lot of the reason that people animal hoard is for that emotional connection, which they're getting from the pets, which since that's where their energy goes, means there isn't as much for the other family members and people in the household. So they get more and more estranged from the humans as they get more and more connected with the pets. Good thing to remember about having only a limited number of pets. So thank you for that advice. One other factor I was just wondering in this digital age that we live in now and are familiar with in various ways, is there such a thing as digital hoarding? There is, because hoarding is a brain-based condition. Anything that can be hoarded will be hoarded, including digital information. Um, I have an 87-year-old client who has four terabytes of information, and it's all articles that he's going to read, you know, when he retires. Um, And he has so much that he still wants to digitize and put onto the computer that he's going to go and buy another terabyte of storage for that. He's 87. He's not going to get through what he has, much less the rest of it that he wants to have, but he feels the need to have it. He cannot let it go. And that is one of the symptoms of hoarding behavior. But something else to keep in mind is he not only has the four terabytes digitally, but you need all of the stuff to store it. So he has his computer. He has the the external hard drives. He has a backup computer to back up the first computer. He also has all of the cables and connections and everything else that he needs to keep all of the stuff connected. So you, even with digital stuff, you wind up with a physical component. I've had clients with 40 tablets and phones and things like that. It, you have all of that stuff still that you have to deal with. So digital is not footprint free. Let's put it that way. And so you can still wind up with a lot of things you have to manage as well as the data itself. Well, I wanted to turn to how do we handle hoarding? And I wanted to start out with those factors that might affect health and safety um, in a hoarder's home. Might it be necessary? You're talking about your clients, but is it possible that in addition to what you and your 
um, uh, colleagues do to address the issue that it might be necessary to contact some authority, police, fire, public health, protective services, animal welfare agencies. I'm just thinking of a few. How is that done? For the most part, you can report anonymously to the various departments. So, for example, Adult Protective, you can report anonymously there. Child Protective, Animal Services, uh, Housing, Code Compliance, they all have the ability for anonymous reporting. That doesn't mean the person won't figure out it was you. But a lot of times they'll ascribe it to somebody else completely different. So I've had children that have reported their parents, but the parent is sure it's Sally from the HOA that lives down the street that's never liked me. She's the one that turned me in. Um, And the officers that come out will not confirm who reported them. It will drive them a little bit nutso in that they really, really want to know because it's easier when you know for sure who to be mad at, but you can report it anonymously. So... I was wondering also about the family members. You mentioned a little bit earlier about what family members shouldn't do. For example, if, you know, the the older parent is away, what can they do? Is there some way to help them? What are recommended approaches uh, for folks who are listening and saying, I got to do something for mom or dad? There's a bunch of different things that you can do. But sometimes they won't let you. One thing to keep in mind is your family members and you have a history. So, for example, my mother and I, when I would go to her house and make a suggestion or offer to help organize something in her house, she saw it as me being difficult. And if I just looked at her, sometimes she'd go off like a bottle rocket because she read all kinds of things that didn't exist into my into my look because she lived with me when I was a teenager. And every look I gave her was a bad look back then, right? So sometimes it's easier for a professional to say exactly the same thing and be heard. One of my clients said, you never listen to somebody whose diaper you changed. So you never listen to your younger siblings, you never listen to your young cousins or um, your kids or grandkids. It doesn't matter that your son is the top neuroscientist in the world, you know, top neurologist. You will not go to him for your problem. You will find a better doctor. Um, My own mom uh, needed a professional organizer, so I found somebody who lived near her who was brand new. And I coached the girl on what to do and what to say and how to work with my mom. And afterwards, my mom called me and she said, the next time you come up here, you need to have a meeting with Barbara because she knows what she's doing. And you could probably use her help because she's really smart. So I I was coaching Barbara all the way through the whole process. After every appointment, we talked about what happened, what to do next, how to make her plans, da, 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 da. She was amazing because it wasn't me. So when it comes to family, you have to tread a little lightly. Now, I do have a book that I just put out, A Practical Guide to Hoarding for Friends and Family. There's a lot of information in there about some techniques that you can use, which honestly, given how people's finances are, they may not be able to afford a pro like me. So it would give you some tips and tricks that will help you. There's also things like... um, I already told you about the ICD website, challengingdisorganization.net, but there's also napo.net, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Experts, um, and the International OCD Foundation.org website. They all have some tips and tricks as well as going into some coping mechanisms and some ways to suggest things like therapy, etc. So I think all of those sites could be useful to you to get more knowledge. The more knowledge you have, the better you'll be able to interact with that family member. Thank you for mentioning your book. I think that that's going to be very helpful. What I was wondering, you, I, we view you as um, a professional organizer. I mean, we, I introduced you as a board-certified professional organizer. Is that the criteria 
that a professional needs to work with hoarders? Um, are there certain designated terms that are used that people who are able to afford to get some help, who do they need to look for if they decide that they want to to get some help? And what would be some basic steps to address the problem? We always need to start with therapy. Anybody who's hoarding really needs to be talking to a therapist because you need to find out what those root causes are, what the triggers are that are adding to the behavior. So just starting with that. But in terms of professional organizers, our industry is not like lawyers where there's a bar. Okay, so anybody can go out today and say they're a professional organizer. If somebody is a certified professional organizer or a certified professional organizer in chronic disorganization, that means that they've passed some tests, they have lots of experience with clients, they have to have continuing education to maintain their certification. It does tend to show that somebody is focused and is always trying to make sure that they are on the cutting edge of the best techniques, the best therapies, the best everything um, to help that person. Now on the ICD website, you can look for somebody with a hoarding specialist certificate. Uh, with NAPO, they don't have anything specific that says it's a hoarding specialist. But most of us that do work with people that hoard will have it in our uh, descriptions on those two websites because you can find an organizer on both of those websites based on your zip code. Uh, and so that might be a good place to start. Now that doesn't mean that somebody who's not on those sites can't be very good, but then you'll have to ask a lot more questions to know whether they really have the training. You don't want somebody who takes any job that comes their way just because they want to pay their bills because you can cause more damage than you can um, be a benefit if you do things badly. And so since you started out with indicating that some kind of treating uh, treatment would be necessary or therapy, is hoarding treatable? Um, is it possible that through therapy that they can get over and not hoard anymore? It is possible. It does happen. But with therapy, the idea is to gain that insight that I said most people that hoard don't have. They don't see it as a problem. They don't understand why people are mad at them. So if by working with the therapist, they can deal with, with that and understand it so that they can prevent it before it gets to the same level, it will seriously slow down any rehoarding behaviors and they'll catch it sooner. It's also the case that there's often what's called co-occurring conditions. It used to be called comorbid. You might've heard that term where there's things like generalized anxiety, depression, bipolar, etc. You need to treat those as well because they're going to contribute to the hoarding behavior. Plus they're going to be taking a lot of the energy that the person has away from being able to remedy the hoarding problem. So that's why therapy comes into play. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the type that has been shown to have the most success in helping people regain control and maintain it. There's always going to be backsliding. It's something you're going to have to manage. It'll never go away completely, but once you can manage it, you get rid of all of those health and safety issues. You get rid of a lot of other problems that if you don't address it, you'll be facing. And are there local government agencies where people might be able to uh, search? Since this program goes all over the country, is there certain places that somebody can look for associations or therapy groups or a type of therapy group or, again, agency where they could get the help they need? Unfortunately, a lot of it depends on where you live. And that's often to do with finances. So counties that are strapped for cash often don't have the same resources available to ones that are more flush. There is in every county, in every state, the local area agency on aging. That is a great place to start to find out what services either the county can provide or what other charitable type services they know about that might be able to help. Now, 
there are some ways you might be able to get help that's kind of around the barn. So for example, I have had an agency that could pay a month's rent for someone because they qualified financially. That person then took the rent money to pay for our services. So they helped with the hoarding, but not by paying for hoarding. You see, so when you work with a caseworker, um, hopefully they will be clued in to a lot of these different things and can say, okay, we can't do this, but we can do that. Now, therapy is often something that local government agencies can supplement. Not everywhere, but a lot of places can do that. So they might be able to get you started in working with a grief and trauma therapist to start dealing with this issue. Then, again, depending on your finances, you'll have to see where you go from there. And you're talking a lot about treatment right now, but early at the beginning of this interview, you did talk about hoarding can start as, as early as when somebody is a teenager. So I was wondering if you look at it from a sort of a life perspective, can hoarding be prevented if you start out young and, um, you know, look at it and address it at those times or at other stages? And if so, how? It can be. But the problem is, is it starts in the teenage years. It's usually managed by parents until the 20s. And then spouses and, and et cetera until the 30s. Therapy is often not sought until they're in the 40s, which means you've got 30 years of hoarding behavior that you now have to try to change. If you address it early and, and they learn to manage it early and they get insight into it early, then it won't get as far from the very beginning. But it's not usually sought until it's very well established. It's also the situation where the physical help is also often not sought until it's well established. And so it's an uphill climb for everybody at that point. Um, I really wish that there was some sort of a medication or there was some sort of a magic bullet that I could offer. My magic wand is in the shop. It's broken. I just, they never tell me when it's coming out. Um, but if I could help people and fix the problem, not only would I be a millionaire tonight, but <laughs> um, it would be a wonderful thing to be able to do. But this is going to be an uphill struggle for the rest of that person's life. But it can be brought under control. It can be managed. And they can still live a good, healthy, happy lifestyle. They just need potentially just somebody to come in and check on them and make sure they're not recluttering. But most therapists don't even have a question about clutter in their intake forms. So they don't know when they're seeing you for your depression over your father's death that your house is completely packed. And they need to address both in order to get the best results with the hoarding. And then taking that one step further, Maria, I was just wondering if there is some therapy going on, do we need to know about like lifestyle changes or lifestyle uh, modifications or home remedies that people out there, professionals can provide to, to help to prevent hoarding? And who might those professionals be? Is it somebody like you or might there be somebody else out there that our listeners should be aware of? Well, the idea is to have a plan. That can come from a therapist, but a professional organizer is probably the best person to be in the space and create a plan. Hold the person accountable, and we can do that through photographs and things, which can be shared with the therapist if we put it together as a team. What winds up happening sometimes is that the person's in therapy but doesn't talk about the hoarding, and they're with us trying to deal with the hoarding separately. When we can make it as part of a team, which could include family members, the therapist, the clergy, friends, family, a whole bunch of people there to support that person, then the success rate seriously improves. So it's very good when we can have everybody working in a coordinated way pushing the same direction. What winds up happening is, is until you set it up as a team, everybody's shoving in from a different direction. And if you think of a giant ball with people standing on all sides pushing into the middle, the ball goes nowhere. But if you're all on one side, it can go as far as you need it to go. So setting everyone up as a team, usually under the direction of the professional organizer, because we're on site, it does tend to work the best uh, altogether. 
So, you know, you've got to have everybody. The landlord, uh, there's a question about being able to throw somebody out of your house for hoarding. But then since it's a diagnosed disease, if you have a diagnosis, then the Americans with Disabilities Act kicks in. So they have to give you more time. It doesn't mean that you're allowed to stay there forever, but you might be able to get accommodations for time to deal with it. There's all kinds of different factors that come into play, which is why it helps to make sure that everybody understands a plan and that there is one. And a team approach seems to be the the best approach. So, well, Maria, we're just about out of time here, but I wanted to have you share again any recommended resources that our listeners can use to learn more about hoarding and any final comments. Sure. You're always welcome to reach out to me at conquertheclutter.org and our phone number is 855-284-3246. I answer questions for free. So I can at least get you started. If you have a question, you don't know what's going on, I'd be more than happy to do that. There's also the websites I gave you. There's another one called childrenofhoarders.com, which has some wonderful resources there. And there are some really good books out there. The ones that I like the best are ones written by Skeketty, Frost, and Tolan. They're like the three big researchers out of Boston University. Um, two of them are retired now, but they did some wonderful books on the topic, and they were the first ones to really start researching hoarding. So they have a really interesting insight, but they don't write like researchers. They write like real people. So the rest of us can understand what they're saying. Okay. Well, I want to thank Maria Spitalnik with the company called Conquer the Clutter for joining me today. Thank you so much, Maria. We really appreciate your many tips and thoughts. Thank you. And to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can always access all of the Aging Matters radio programs and the TV show content, which we have quite a few as well. And of course, the Aging Matters podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Moth Media, and we want to thank that company for helping to produce this show each week. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Music